Hi, I'm Madhvi Romani. And I'm Rena Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week, we'll be discussing a new topic or trend, so you can stay informed the easy way. Serena, what are we talking about this week? So, we are recording this episode of this podcast on Thursday, the 24th of February at 7.14pm. I am telling you this very exact time because we will be talking about the current situation in the Ukraine. I hesitate to refer to it as a crisis in the Ukraine because in reality, it's not a crisis in Ukraine, although it kind of is. Russia is invading the Ukraine, and I think we should start referring to it as the Russian invasion because saying it's a crisis in Ukraine, although that is, I guess, technically true, makes Russia seem kind of passive in this whole thing, and they're invading the Ukraine. Just a little while ago, we spoke with my great-aunt, who lives in Lithuania. Lithuania, like many of the Baltic countries and other former Soviet Union countries, have declared a state of emergency. I guess from history, they all think they're going to be next. And the government has advised them to pack a suitcase with all their valuables so they are ready to evacuate at a moment's notice. This is really, really scary, not just because it directly affects my family, but also because it feels like we're on the brink of World War III. Today, I was checking emails at my corporate job, and the whole time I kept thinking about how absurd it felt to be sitting here answering slacks and emails about things that, while are very important for my job, and I obviously want to do a good job and take it seriously, but in the face of what was happening in the world, felt so meaningless and silly. So today, I have been thinking about the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Yeah, I think a lot of news outlets are referring to it like Euronews and stuff as the biggest attack that one state has made on another state since World War II in Europe. So actually, it is a really big deal. Russia has just decided to invade another country and take it over totally unprovoked. It's interesting what you were saying about Lithuania. And when we, I think yesterday, we said on our social media, hey, we're going to talk about this. Does anyone have any questions? One of the questions was like, when will it end? And on Monday night, Putin basically made this massive speech, like it was an hour long, and I watched the whole thing, which sort of gave you a really big insight into his thinking. And there was so much cognitive dissonance in the speech that I just basically had a headache for the next hour. It developed when I was watching it, and then afterwards I was just like, what? So in this speech, he kind of gives his justification and his thinking about why he's doing this, and one of the things that he says is that Ukraine is not, in his opinion, or according to his own history that he kind of made up, mostly, a state in itself and never has had the right to be. It was only, you know, Lenin and some Bolsheviks who kind of like made Ukraine an autonomous region. And actually, the whole of Ukraine should be sort of part of Russia. But then, basically, he wants the USSR back. But if he got the USSR back, that would actually include Lithuania, Hungary, Albania... Latvia, Estonia, all of those countries. So, I mean, I can understand why Lithuania has said to everyone, hey, pack your suitcases, because it was really clear from this video that he's living in his own reality. And 
he really wants the USSR back, which is kind of funny because it's unhinged thinking, really. He can't just go around and take all these independent countries that have been independent since like the 1990s or ever since establishing their own nations and then decide by pure force that he just wants to take them over again. So he seemed unhinged. He seemed also very contradictory. So he was talking in this about the terrible corruption of Ukraine, how there's all these oligarchs, how they've robbed Ukraine, all of these oligarchs of their natural resources and stuff, which is basically what he's done and all of his friends have done in Russia. It started off this speech in a totally economic kind of way. So he was talking about how Ukraine owes Russia $250 billion or something. And he was talking about turnovers, so like it's kind of company. And then he was talking about how people who are against the state uh, were persecuted, which is exactly what's happening in his country. And then he was talking about how the Ukrainian language is used instead of Russian. And there was all this Russian phobia and it was a whole sort of genocide against Russians, which is totally, there's no evidence for. Yeah, at some point I was just looking at this and then I noticed there was a bunch of phones on his desk and they were all really old-fashioned phones and it's just like landlines and I was just like, is this guy totally disconnected from reality and is he living totally in his own world and he seems totally insulted and paranoid and also fearful, paranoid that, you know, Ukraine is going to be used as a NATO state and this is a threat to Russia altogether and NATO is plotting against Russia and the whole world is seeing, you know, is never fair to Russia. Then he brings up Clinton at some point. He's like, oh, I asked Clinton if I could be in NATO and Clinton kind of said no. And he's kind of slumped at this desk with all these old phones on his desk. And it's the most bizarre speech ever. I actually don't recommend you watch it because it's kind of a waste of time. But I think we all underestimated how seriously extreme Putin is. Maybe a lot of people also thought that he, there was a lot more strategy behind his thinking. But at the moment, yeah, he just seems kind of unhinged. So yeah, where will it end? One big pro is that, you know, countries like Lithuania are protected by NATO. So if he does venture past Ukraine, then you're really declaring all-out war and whether Russia can sustain that. I mean, NATO is big, right? It's all the powers of the West, basically. So it's going to be hard for him to move past Ukraine. But then also, where does it end for the Ukrainian people? Like this morning, there were queues going out of Kiev and just absolute traffic. People were queuing at supermarkets. People were queuing at banks. Residential buildings got bombed. People were out of their homes. They were just moving west, 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 which is quite ironic, actually, because he wanted to stop Ukraine moving towards the west. And actually, all the people are trying to move as west as possible. So yeah, it's a full-on invasion. It's a conflict that can go on unless it stops somehow for, I guess, maybe years even. It's hard to tell at this point. I was watching Citizen K recently, sort of just to refresh my memory on the history of Russia and the Soviet Union. And they show a video clip of Putin on a children's show. And one of the kids asks him what event influenced his life the most. And he responds with the collapse of the Soviet Union. In fact, he has been quoted as saying that the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. So obviously, the Soviet Union 
had a really big effect on him. If you don't know, Putin used to be a spy for the Soviet Union. He was part of the KGB. He was in Germany. And then when he came back to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union, he became deputy mayor of Moscow, after which he was appointed prime minister by Yeltsin. And then from being prime minister, when Yeltsin sort of was out of the picture, he became president and has been ever since. In Citizen K, they are talking about how when election season rolls around, it's not really elections, they call it election theater because nobody runs against Putin. They say that all the candidates are sort of puppets set up by the Kremlin and that Putin always wins by an overruling majority. I remember speaking to a friend of mine when I was in high school who was Russian and he was saying that whenever elections roll around, everyone just votes for Putin. And then when he couldn't run because of the constitution, Putin went on TV and said, I want you all to vote for this person. And then everyone just votes for that person. And then after the one term is done, Putin is president again. I can't say his name, Dmitry Medyevsky. I always get it wrong. So I'm really sorry to everyone who's listening for butchering that name. Yeah, I think Russia as a country is absolutely fascinating to me because it is so unbelievably massive. And the empire of the Soviet Union was obviously a lot bigger. But modern day Russia actually encompasses 85, they're known as territories, but they're essentially countries, 22 of which are independent republics. Russia spans over 11 time zones. And actually, 77% of the population lives in the European part of Russia, west of the Ural Mountains. So Russia is the largest country on Earth. It covers one-eighth of all inhabited land on Earth. And it has the same amount of surface area as Pluto, which is 17 million kilometers squared. Like, that's crazy to think Russia has the same surface area as Pluto. But yes, it's a massive, massive country. and. It still is an imperial state in and itself because it's taken in all of these countries, right? It spans from Europe all the way to Asia. It's the only country that has borders on three different continents, right? It like borders the United States of America, Asia, and Europe. Up until the 1800s, Russia owned Alaska and then sold it to the United States. It owned it from the 1700s to the 1800s. That's just a fun fact about Russia. But yeah, just when you think about Russia as a country today, I think it's really important to understand that when the Soviet Union collapsed, the 90s were sometimes referred to as the Wild West 90s, like the Wild 90s in Russia, because like the situation was unhinged. People were getting killed, there was crimes, there was robberies. Like I highly recommend you all watch Citizen K. It explains this in really great detail. But the state after the collapse of the Soviet Union, in order to generate money, they sold off a lot of their companies, their oil, their natural resources to private people. And this is how the oligarchs became a thing in Russia. And then it was with the help of the oligarchs that Putin kind of, he leveraged them to gain control. And of course, if anyone turns against him or is no longer in their favor, you know, he accuses them of embezzlement and they go to jail or they're executed. You know, he kills his rivals in mysterious poison attacks. But one of the things that I also kind of feel like is super important to mention, I mean, Putin is clearly an unhinged individual, the richest man on earth. Well, we assume, we don't really know, but 
it is estimated that he's the richest man on earth. I feel like sometimes there's an overemphasis put on Putin. Yes, he is the leading figure, but he's also still just a figure ahead. It's like, if we get rid of Putin, the deep-seated corruption will still be there. He's just at the head of this. This entire network of people, this entire government system needs to be taken apart. And I think that sometimes this overemphasis on Putin as a bad person makes the situation seem too easy. Like, all we need to do is get rid of Putin. All we need to do is get rid of Trump. That's not the reality. We need to break down these systems of oppression, ruthless exploitation, in order to actually have these countries be fully functioning countries. And then again, on the flip side, as I just said that, I was like, oh, wow, I mean, what's happening in the Ukraine is another proxy war that two superpowers are fighting and a bunch of innocent people are going to die and suffer. I don't know. I'm very emotional about this whole thing. I mean, I hear what you're saying, although I do think that people have tried, like Navalny has tried, and Navalny is saying that, you know, he disagrees with the invasion of Ukraine. And I think Putin is holding on to power and the whole system and all that corruption and all that stuff couldn't exist without a leader also being there. And also, it's kind of dangerous to say it's a proxy war too, because it's literally one guy's decision, which is his decision to invade a country, which I guess Ukraine wanted to be more allied to, you know, Europe and NATO for good reasons. And that was its choice. Of course, there is a kind of ideological war as there always has been, but it's not really a proxy war. It's just a flat out invasion by one guy. I think it's very interesting you were mentioning all the different types of people living in Russia and stuff. A lot of groups are ethnic minorities who are really discriminated against. They want to also break away and form their own regions and they're totally at war with the state of Russia. And it's quite funny also this contradictory stance that Putin takes where he's like, oh, there are these regions, the two regions in the in the east, which has kind of more ethnic Russians there, and they are being discriminated against, and therefore we should take over the entire country. It's just like one rule for everyone else and one rule for Russia. And there are so many people who have gone up against Putin and the Russian state and who have tried to change things, and it hasn't worked out for any of them. And that's because of one man and his friends. But all of those friends are in those positions because of this one man. What's kind of super interesting about the history of Russia and Ukraine is that actually they all come from the same ancestral roots. So modern-day Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine all come from Kievan Rus, which was a federation of East Slavic, Baltic, and Finnic people in Eastern and Northern Europe. And actually, Belarus and Russia both derive their modern-day names from this historical ancestry. And the state began to decline during the late 11th century and the 12th century. It was sort of weakened by economic factors, and then it fully collapsed when the Mongols invaded in 1240. So, I mean, it's not hard to imagine that all these countries sort of have similar ancestral roots. Every group of countries in every area does, but this doesn't give Russia the right to claim the Ukraine. And I think that this sort of history a lot of times is what people draw on when they say, oh, Ukraine belongs to Russia. But yeah, when Russia was pushing back against the Mongols, 
It started in a town called Moscovy, which is now Moscow. And from there, they expanded and they expanded east. And it was Ivan the Terrible who helped push territories further and further. And this actually reminds me a lot when we were talking about our episode about capitalism recently and about how capitalism gives everyone sort of a uniting identity. Because one of the things that Ivan the Terrible did was every territory he took over, he converted them to Russian orthodoxy because... This gave everyone sort of a common identity. But yeah, poor Ukraine has sort of, you know, as many of those countries in that area have a complicated history. Following the Mongol invasion of Kievan Rus, much of the Ukraine was then controlled by Lithuania. And then after the Union of Lublin in 1569 by Poland, which was then within the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in 1619. So... Poor Ukraine, like many of those countries, have just sort of been handed around. In 1648, this man named, I'm so sorry for butchering this again, I'm so sorry, Ukraine, you've suffered enough, Bodan Kemlenitsky led an uprising of Cossacks against the Commonwealth and the Polish king. If you don't know what Cossacks are, they're kind of like mercenaries, but like, not really, but kind of. He rode into Kiev in 1648, for which he was hailed the liberator of the people from Polish captivity, and he founded the Cossacks of Hetmanete, I'm so sorry, which existed until 7064. And basically, this kind of goes on with them being annexed or taken over by different countries. If we talk about Ukraine, one of the things that Putin said and was really focused on was the fact that in the Ukraine they were using, obviously, the Ukrainian language and they stopped having Russian as being the main language, you know, in schools and in all their things because that's their language. And this language is actually really old. It's an individual language by itself. So Ukraine as a sort of identity language goes back about a thousand years. According to Serhii Plokhi, a professor of Ukrainian and Eastern European history at Harvard, But then the first real Ukrainian political project started in the mid-19th century. But at that time, sort of, Ukraine was divided between two powers. One was the Russian Empire and Austria-Hungary. And very early on, the Russian Empire recognized the threat posed by a separate and literary Ukrainian language to the unity of their empire. So starting in the 1860s, they absolutely prohibited the publication of Ukrainian altogether, and just stopped the development of this literary language. And then in the middle of World War I and revolution, the Ukrainians tried to fight for independence again, but then they were ultimately defeated. And then when the Russians were trying to sort of create a unity of state, like France was doing, for example, the idea to create a state was that you create one language out of different dialects or different languages. And so, like, what remains sort of today in Russia, like you were saying, there's so many different groups, is that there's this one big Russian or Slavic nation. It can have many different tribes, but they must, you know, be united as one nation. And that's the model that, you know, you have also one language. And Putin basically subscribes to this model. And therefore, like he says, Ukraine and the Ukrainian language has no legitimacy. So these ideas and these kind of conflicts or these sort of threats of uh, independence go back like really a long way. And what's really cool is 
There's a Moscow-based newspaper. It's run by Dmitry Muratov. He's the editor-in-chief, but he also like won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2021. They decided that they were going to publish tomorrow's newspaper, so the Friday edition, in both Ukrainian and Russian to show their dissent and also to show that like they don't find the Ukrainian language or the Ukrainian people a threat. I feel really bad for poor Ukraine because they're literally surrounded by Russia. So on the border to Moldova, there is a breakaway state called Transnistria, which is essentially a Russian military base is on there. And it's literally the thin strip of the border between Moldova and Ukraine. It's not recognized internationally, but it's a military base. Actually, Russia has nine external military bases, and they also have that little enclave underneath Lithuania above Poland. So poor Ukraine is literally surrounded by Russia, and these attacks are horrific. I think Amnesty International has called on Russia to halt their attacks because in the face of all this, people calling on Russia to stop their attacks means very little, but because they were attacking civilians in hospitals, which is against various international conventions, attacking civilians in war, which I understand the point of, but then also seems kind of silly in the sense of you're attacking and invading another country. You clearly don't give a shit about what anyone else thinks or says, so why would you listen to international law in that way? But yeah, it's uh, it's also been super fascinating just to see everyone's response to this, especially on social media, when you see a lot of misinformation and disinformation shared, when people are sharing videos without checking them, and it's so chaotic, and I think I spent the entire day in a state of panic, just trying to understand what was happening, what was real. You, know, you see these images of towns in Ukraine being bombed and bleeding people, and it was just, it was a lot to take in. Yeah, like you were saying about the geography, it is being attacked on all fronts, so by sea, by air, by land. Belarus is helping out the Russians for some stupid reason, which is just totally annoying. And also, geographically, from where we're sitting, there's only one country between us and the Ukraine, that's Poland, and it's literally a 20-hour drive from them to us. It's not very far away. Yeah, speaking of Poland, I was just talking to a friend of mine who is Polish, and he said that his mom stood in line for petrol today for 40 minutes, only to find out when she got to the front that they had run out of petrol. So Poland is in a complete state of panic, too, obviously. Petrol is really something, actually, energy we get in Europe. I think about 40%, if I remember correctly, of our energy comes from Russia, which we severely have to limit. And Schultz, who is our chancellor, has actually paused the confirmation and all the paperwork for Nord Stream 2, which is a big gas pipe that is going to supply Germany with a lot of its energy. And obviously, yes, one of the things that could be an effect, you know, if this goes on is that the price of energy, the price of gas, for example, is going to go up even more. That's going to be one of the consequences. Another thing that's the response from a lot of the Western powers, the UK, although the UK is late on, on their whole Russia 
sanctions because they're sanctioning like banks some of those banks have been sanctioned in the u.s for like four years or something but actually finally they're doing something i think sanctions is a bit difficult because one of the real powers that the west does have is to cut off these really rich people from you know access to these financial markets and most of you know russia's money is in foreign markets and stuff like that so it will hurt a lot of really powerful people in russia obviously with sanctions it will also make life in Russia uncomfortable, even more uncomfortable than it is. And Putin also talked about this in his more than one hour long speech where he kind of justified it saying, well, they just want to give us sanctions no matter what, they're going to give us sanctions whether I do something or not, which is actually not true because I think now the sanctions are going to be very heavy. I think there's not really much else apart from full-on war that the Western powers can do because... Ukraine is actually not a NATO nation. It's not one of them. And so NATO cannot get it ratified, the UN, if they decide that they want to defend or go into Ukraine, because obviously also Russia is part of the UN. So there's sort of this like diplomatic tension there. So I guess there will not be a war from the West fought in Ukraine at least. But like I said, in other countries that are NATO countries, I think there definitely needs to be a stop. All of these Western nations in the newspapers and everything, they are preparing themselves that there are going to be a lot of refugees coming in from Ukraine right now. Today, I was just at, there were some protests here at Brandenburger Tour and stuff. And I mean, first of all, the whole Russian embassy, including Aeroflot, <laughs> funnily enough, was all blocked off and protected by police. Like you couldn't get anywhere near it. So the German police were really like standing in front of it and they, they had buried the whole lot off because I think there were a few protests I think 11am then 2pm then I went by at 5pm and I think at 5pm you know it was gathering momentum people were steadily coming in but you could see it wasn't organized it was just people expressing like solidarity I guess and the Russian embassy is so here as in everywhere with Soviet architecture it's just so big and solid and silent you know it just almost makes you think like it just doesn't matter all of this stuff is such a big country is going to do whatever it can do but i do really believe that like russia cannot go against all nato power and reclaim all of europe you know without a serious fight and i don't think he's capable of it and also i do think that part of what he's battling for is to hold on to control and power in his own country and like you said, it's such a big country with so many people. And I understand that, yeah, it's one man, but also there does need to be a point where his own people turn against him or even public opinion turns against him or something gives or some of even the oligarchs that surround him, something happens. Yeah, and I think he's a very paranoid man right now, making very bad decisions. Like, Ukraine is a massive country. For Russia to sustain an occupation in a country that just absolutely doesn't want to, it's not like Crimea, which they annexed in 2014, because this is now an entire massive, massive space. So is the whole Russian army just going to occupy this entire country? I think it's going to be a, real, a really serious fight. And obviously, I even if NATO is not getting involved directly, I'm sure that all the weapons and funding and everything is going to go to the Ukrainians. The Ukrainian President Zelensky has declared martial law and has basically told anyone, everyone in the country, to just pick up a weapon, which is terrifying because like this time last week, 
everyone was just going about their lives. The other thing about Zelensky, he used to be a comedian and an actor, and he actually played for a long time on a TV show called Servant of the People. He actually played the role of president of the Ukraine, and then he got elected in, um, I think it was 2019, and I think he won by like a majority, something like 70%. He was immensely popular. He made actually a really good speech about that they were going to fight, which is way better than Putin's speech, because as a copywriter, I'm like, dude, there is no conciseness or clarity about your speeches at all. He just sits there and then he just rants, and he's ranting about the Ukraine based on his own history, which started off in an essay that he published in 2005, and he's just going on and on and on. So I think I kind of appreciate the American presidents, at least, like, they do atrocious things, but when they announce them, at least they announce them in a clear way with good messaging. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. It's infuriating to watch Putin's speeches. Well, this one in particular. Also, just a complete side note, if you don't know what the NATO is or how the NATO was started, NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and it was founded as a juxtaposing force to the Soviet Union back during the time of the Cold War. The world is on fire, which is great, because when is the world not on fire? But one of the things that I did see, and I do think that this is sort of very important to note, is that a lot of times people will say things like that, oh, this is the longest period of time that Europe has ever known peace. And I do think it's important to remember that there have been multiple conflicts and wars and a lot of dead since 1945, just because they didn't affect West Europe doesn't mean that they didn't happen. You have Cyprus in 1974 with more than 2,000 dead. You have Yugoslavia from 1991 to 1995 with more than 200,000 people died. You have Chechnya since 1994 with more than 150,000 people have died. You have Kosovo, you have Georgia, Ukraine since 2014. Already 14,000 people have died there. So there have been a lot of conflicts that have happened in the countries and wars, and people have suffered and people have died, and people will continue to suffer and will continue to die. And it's just a dark day and a sad day. And watch how the conflict continues. And again, we're recording this on a Thursday. So much can happen. We hope for good things, but the way things are going, it's, it's looking pretty bleak. And ending on that very bleak note, here are three things that you can do this week to be a better person. Thing one, like mentioned before, be mindful of misinformation and disinformation. With social media, there's a lot of videos and a lot of information floating around, so be mindful of what you repost, check your sources, and stick to verified news sources, and don't listen to anything Russia Today says. Thing two, we have a list of journalists who are either in or reporting from Ukraine, which we will link to in our newsletter. If you do want to stay informed about the situation, it is changing all the time, and these should be good sources. Thing three, we will link lists of places to donate in our newsletter and on our Instagram. If you can, please donate money to help the poor civilians who are suffering immensely under this invasion. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as four euro a month. Visit Patreon.com/slash/misinformed for links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed, or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi. Misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.